Well, good morning, church. Man, how good is that? Just to be together uh, and, and, and shout out together, declare together, be reminded together of the extraordinary goodness of God. You know, I mean, uh, this incredible supernatural revelation gives us every reason, uh, every second of every day uh, to know the goodness of God. The, the trouble is uh, that the majority of our day uh, isn't here. Uh, it's in the everyday life of relational dynamics and circumstances and resource challenges. And so throughout the week, there are a thousand things that come our way uh, to dismember that which we know to be true, to tear it from our minds and hearts and to say and dare to say to us, this is in fact not true. And God is in fact not as good as you think. Look, look at these circumstances. Look at these challenges. Look at this difficulty. And this is exactly why the authors of scripture and the author of Hebrews in particular says, do not neglect ever, ever, ever to gather together regularly as some are in the habit of doing, but come together to stir one another up and stir one another up toward love and good deeds. We, we come together to defy what is not true, that our hearts begin to believe as the week progresses. We come together to be reminded by the others around us who know the truth as we remind them of the truth we know, to defy uh, sin and death and the enemy in our flesh to say, no, no, he is good. Oh, he is good. And we know he is because he said it and he showed us. This is why we do what we just did. We start by saying, God, we're going to build an altar every single day with stones of remembrance, Ebenezer's. We're going to build it. We're going to say, yes, we remember. And then we're going to, what are we building? We're building that altar that says, you are so good and you will never let me down even when I feel like you are not around. And then for us to kind of come together and say, Jesus, I know that as even I shout that, it is hard for me to trust that at times. So be enough to help me even trust. What a great thing it is to gather up regularly and to defy that which dares to tell us that our God is not good because he is indeed good. Amen? Amen. So man, let's gather up regularly and let's do this regularly so that we can stand firm in the confession of our faith and we can be stirred up toward love and good deeds. Uh, Epaphroditus uh, had traveled from the city of Philippi, uh, a long journey to the city of Rome, uh, to come and see Paul uh, because the church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to Paul uh, with a very particular purpose, to deliver a gift. Uh, you see, the, the, the church in Philippi, uh, we find out, had, had consistently throughout Paul's journey uh, sent gifts, uh, actual finances to, to meet Paul's needs uh, and to, to invest in the ministry that God was affecting through Paul throughout his journey. And there had been some time that had passed since the church in Philippi had been able to access Paul. Uh, obviously, Paul had gone through a sequence of events where he'd been in prison for now years and years. And so it's hard to access Paul when he's in Jerusalem in prison and then Capernaum in prison and then off on ships and then off to Rome. And so there'd been this, this space and time. And so eventually the church in Philippi had had this opportunity to uh, collect resources from the collective church and, and had sent Epaphroditus to take them to Paul in Rome. And Epaphroditus had connected with Paul in Rome, bringing this uh, financial gift to Paul to meet his needs in Rome. 
while Epaphroditus was there, uh, obviously, as you can imagine, uh, Paul would have been so excited to, uh, to reconnect with the church in Philippi. He hadn't heard from them for some time. And so uh, I can assure you the conversations with Epaphroditus would have been like, tell me more. How's the church doing? What's going on there? What, what's, what's beautiful? What's brutal? What's, you know, and, and so Epaphroditus unpacks all of this. We can uh, absolutely imagine uh, because we know how Paul responded. So we can extract from Paul's response in this letter that he wrote that Epaphroditus shared quite a bit about the unique and, and real challenges of the church in Philippi. So this letter of Philippians, which we are sadly coming to a close on uh, literally next week. I mean, it's, it's, it's the close of the letter, another one to grieve that is behind us and to celebrate that we got to explore it. Uh, Paul is writing this letter with two purposes in mind. Uh, one, to thank the church in Philippi for their gift, uh, for their support, for their love and care, uh, for this incredible thing. And uh, to use this opportunity to speak into some of the challenges and questions that Epaphroditus had brought to Paul's attention that the church in Philippi was struggling with. So this is what we've been exploring for the last few months. And as you can imagine, when you are writing a letter back to a person or a church in this case, to kind of thank them for something they sent, and then also to unpack for them the details of the challenges, the bulk of the letter is going to be the details of the challenges, which is certainly true in the letter of Philippians. Uh, the very introduction of Philippians, where Paul greets them and, and starts this letter, there's a thank you that happens right there. And then at the end of the letter, there's a thank you, and everything in between is really like, man, let's talk about the challenges that you have. So when we are studying a letter like this, uh, we might assume, sometimes rightly in a letter, uh, that the real bulk of that which is important to study, that which has profound truth for us to engage in and be transformed by, exists in that middle bulk of the letter, because it's like, hey, thanks so much, so thrilled for your partnership, and then at the end, and again, thank you so much, we kind of go, bookends, got it, and we sort of, uh, we just acknowledge, uh, if you will, that Paul is saying, thank you. Uh, this is what we do with scripture often is we take the greetings at the front, the greetings on the end, or the in-between logistics that happen in some of these letters, and we might make the assumption that those parts are necessary parts of a letter, but are not necessary for us to stick on our posters, be inspired by and changed forever. And so often we just kind of breeze by them. But it turns out that God does not and did not ever waste a single word or sentence in this extraordinary supernatural revelation that is his word. He had plenty that he could have put in here that still is waiting to go in. Even John said it. Remember, he's like, man, if I wrote down everything Jesus said and did, we'd have a thousand volumes of this. So believe me when I tell you, uh, every word in this is intended, not just because it's kind of part of a letter, but because it is necessary for us, necessary for what God is revealing. So we should assume always that there is something in each part of scripture that is waiting to encourage, exhort, change, teach, shape, convict, and whatever it is, it's going to do it. Why? Because it is sacred and it is powerful and it is living and it is breathing. So we are in a little section in this letter of Philippians that's sort of that last little like, and, and again, thanks. 
And just as we dive into this, as we started last week, what we discover, what blows my mind always is in this little paragraph that's like, hey, thanks for the gift. The Spirit of God through Paul actually lays out for us in literally just a few sentences the entire theological realities of all things giving of our time, energy, and resources to God and how it all works in one little paragraph. It's like, oh yeah, again, reminder, here's actually what's going on. Here's actually what God's doing. And he does it like he's writing a little like, thank you. You may not find that super fascinating, but I, I do. How does God do this? I often say to myself, God, how? How do you manage uh, through Paul to so succinctly just go, here's a profound, transformative, completely forever changing your life thing in a thank you. But that's what he does. And so today we get to explore this little closing out thank you of this uh, extraordinary letter. And in it, we will find extraordinary things as usual. And so what has Paul done here? If you were here last week, you remember that I kind of said that we're breaking it into two, but it's really one thought. Uh, Last week, Paul began this and the premise of this thank you starts with this. Uh, He says, man, I just want you to know, Philippians, that in receiving your gift, I rejoiced in the Lord. How much? Greatly. Like he's like, this wasn't a small thing for me. When this gift came, I rejoiced greatly in it. And then what Paul's now doing is he's sort of unpacking for the church in Philippi the clarity of what he means when he says rejoicing greatly in it. Because he doesn't want there to be any confusion as to what he's rejoicing greatly in. And so he starts out with this little part that we dealt with last week. Hey, just so you know, didn't need the gift. So let's just start there, which is sort of odd, isn't it? Because typically of us people, when we engage, especially in giving something of ourselves that was costly, investing it in something, it is our propensity to want to make sure that what we put it into, that there is some sense of need there that we got to meet and fulfill. If we didn't, we kind of have this feeling like, what was the point then? Like I like, it was hard for me to give this to you and then you don't need it at all. I want to go find someone that actually needs it or some place that needs it. We, we have that. Now, there is nothing wrong about wanting to put our efforts, our resources toward things that certainly we feel is in need, but there is danger in that because what we can typically do is take on the attitude of more of a king or a god. That, listen, I, I am in a position where I am able to give and I want to make sure I give to things that are actually going to make a difference. And if they're not going to make a difference, then I don't want to give to it. But what if the God who's actually God invites us to give into something and, and, and when he does, he says, listen, the point isn't actually that you're giving so you can meet a need because who can actually meet that need without our giving? God can. So it's a weird dynamic, isn't it? I've got this, God says, I can meet this need without you. So clearly, in real terms, any giving we do, though it may often and hope it often does make significant difference, the point isn't that God needs you to feel like you're making a difference. 
The point is that God's letting you participate in anything at all, period, is awesome. So what Paul starts out here by saying is, listen, man, so greatly encouraged by your gift, but just so you know, what encourages me, what, what causes me to rejoice greatly is not in fact the gift itself because I don't need it. Now we talked last week, Paul was certainly in need, but now he's saying don't need the gift. And then he unpacks for them this beautiful theological reality of where our need should reside, that it is in Christ and that though the circumstances, resources and relational realities of our life affect us, they should not affect our well-being or contentment to the point that it is disrupted. And so he says, I have learned the secret of being content on this planet, whether I have a lot or not. It is in that Christ is doing something in me, for me and through me, that is a guarantee that transcends any need I will ever have on this planet. Do I have need on this planet? Yes, but does that need feel like need when he's met all my needs? No. So he gets there and I think, uh, I'm sure if you were the Philippians, you'd be like, oh, um, okay, so uh, just help us understand, should we have sent the gift? Because it sounds like you don't need it. And Paul's like, oh, no, no, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. So let's grab our Bibles and turn to where Paul goes next and how beautiful he now, through the Spirit of God, unpacks for the church in Philippi and for us uh, the, the clarity of what we should understand as we have the privilege to transfer what is ours, and I don't mean like anything is actually ours, but what we hold, our resources, our time, our energy, when we transfer it into a space of God's kingdom, into someone else's need or ministry, what we should, in fact, understand about that. So we are in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, verse uh, 14. If you have your little notebooks that you've got for this, grab them now because we're going to navigate our way through this beautiful passage to see what wonders and gifts wait to be extracted from this to transform our hearts and minds to be more like Jesus. Okay, so uh, verse uh, 14, we're just coming into the uh, end of verse 13 where he's like, I have learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All I need is Jesus. Don't need you. Don't need your gift. And then he says this, yet, yet. This is a big word. I mean, it's a little word, but it's a big word. Uh, And whenever you're reading scripture, uh, please folks, pay attention to the intended language of scripture. Uh, It's English. I mean, it was, you know, other languages, but in the translation, it's fine. It's still language intended to communicate things. So don't miss these little words. They mean something in language. Don't just pass a little yet or a little because or a little therefore, because those things give you a sense of how you are to connect two thoughts. We have a thought given to us right here. And the thought is, I don't need your gift. Don't need your gift. Now he's going to go into another thought and he puts the word yet between those two thoughts. What does the word yet communicate to us in language? It says, I've just told you something that is true, yet, there it is, yet I'm about to tell you something else that's also true that might at first seem like it contradicts the first thing I told you, but the yet is intended to say both and, not either or. That's what a yet is. This is true, yet... This is also true. This is a fact, yet it also means it's always connecting. So what Paul's about to do is say, don't need your gift, yet something is also true that's going to stand in opposition to not needing your gift, but not unraveling the truth of not needing your gift. Are you with me so far? Okay, hang with me here. Yet, so yet, that's a big word. So you should get excited now. Yet, 
What else does he have? Something's coming that's gonna take that little feeling of, you don't need my gift, away, because it's gonna bring new truth to this. Here he goes. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Oh, something amazing just landed on the table. Paul moved the profound gratitude that he has, the great rejoicing that he has in this gift from the gift itself and its fulfillment of practical needs, which it did, right? To what the gift communicates about the heart of the other people and what that actually does for both Paul, them, and the kingdom of God. As we have been studying uh, the letters of late, we've been in letters like uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, all these letters. What is something we have come to understand and discover about God's great calling on what he calls his church, his body, his bride, us? his people. He has said that if you want to know how the world will know that you follow Jesus, in fact, no, I'll take it further, how the cosmos will know that you follow Jesus, what is it that will communicate to the cosmos, to the world, most profoundly that we are different and follow Jesus? What is it? Unity, love. You guys are like, love, unity. Yes, yes. Love and unity, which are one and the same, cannot be divorced from one another. And, and so what, what he said is, listen, they, the world, will know that you followers of Jesus by your love for one another. Or in Ephesians, as the cosmos watches, what God's great mystery of the gospel was is that he was bringing together that which was humanly broken relationally, the Gentiles and Jews, into one family and binding them together in such a profound way that when we look to the end of the story and we see what is it that displays and demonstrates God's power of redemption, it is that in heaven, all that were there represent uh, people from how many tribes, tongues, and nations? All of them. He has taken what is our division and he has unraveled it. And when he does that, it says the cosmos looks on and says there is the power of God. So we get to say when we are unified and we love well, then we are displaying the gospel at its best and showing the world what happens. And here Paul says this, man, thanks for your gift. Greatly rejoiced. Didn't rejoice in the gift itself because frankly didn't need it. Needed it, but didn't need it. You with me? But, but yet what is amazing about this gift is the kindness that it displayed toward you by sharing in my need or trouble. When we engage in sharing in one another's need or one another's vision for what God is doing, there is a unity, a connection, a love that happens that is profoundly deep in the very thing God is establishing for us. So what Paul is saying here is part of what I re rejoice greatly in is that by you working so diligently to collect this gift, to send it with Epaphroditus, to get it to me, it displays to me that while you are absent and we are apart and there is challenge between us, yet your gift communicates something to me. See what Paul's saying? Your gift communicates something to me. And it is for that communication that I am truly grateful because it is such a kindness. When we were going through our uh, little pandemic, 
that was global and shocked us all. Um, there were some consequences to that pandemic, you know, like one of them was separation. Uh, kind of like Paul stuck in prison in the Philippines, not being able to access him and get stuff to him. You kind of wonder after time goes by, like, who's, who's with me? Who's still with us? Who are we, in fact, together? And in the church world, that was certainly a big thing we've all been talking about since. Like during that time of separation, where we were not gathering on a weekly basis, man, it was a, it was a challenging time for all of us individually, but also collectively. And for us here, at Mosaic and in many, many other churches, one of the things that became so profoundly different than the past was that because you didn't have the proximity of gathering up in lobbies and rooms, you really didn't quite know anymore uh, who was present and not present, who was with or not with, who was for or not for. And we also had all this crazy stuff going on that we had a thousand differing opinions. So you'd read online and be like, whoa, everyone's mad at everyone. It was, it was, you remember, like, I'm trying not to, I've blocked it out. I get it. Yeah, me too. But let's just go back for one second. It was a tough time, right? A hard time to discern who's with one another. You know what was so interesting here at Mosaic, and I've heard this in some other places, when people would come to me and say, do you have any idea? Like, have half the people left the church? They all seem super mad at everything. And you're like, I, it's hard to tell who's still with or who's not with because, because it's just not here, you know? One of the things that was so incredible is that the resources that come from our collective generosity, they remain stable throughout the pandemic. Just a crazy thing, right? But think about what that communicated, not just to, to me or to us on staff. We had the uh, opportunity to see that. And so it was a direct communication. But if I came to you, like we have at times and said, by the way, during the pandemic, the resources remain stable. What does that tell you? That we were in fact, what? Still together, still with each other, still engaged. What a crazy thought that somebody's generosity individually and then multitude of generosity individually, collectively, didn't simply meet needs logistically by giving. It communicated profound unity. And it was a kindness to one another, a kindness to us on staff and a kindness to one another to say, we might disagree, might be mad, might not be physically present much, but we are still what? Unified with each other. What Paul is saying is, man, this kind of giving, uh, it communicates that. And for that, I am so grateful. So then he goes on to describe something interesting. He now shows us something we didn't know before that we now know that makes sense to what he said when he started this letter. He says, and you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So what he's saying is, man, remember that time when the gospel first came to Macedonia? And when I left Macedonia later, there was, there was only one church that was constant in their giving and therefore receiving. Now, what, what does he mean here? 
when he was on his um, third missionary journey, uh, remember Paul traveled from Antioch. He traveled uh, back up through the region of Galatia. He went north of Asia Minor, south of Bithynia. Uh, he actually thought he was going to go into Bithynia. God said no. He thought he was going to go into Asia Minor. God said no. He kept going west, crossed the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. What was the very first city he encountered after crossing the, 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 the Aegean Sea? I'll give you a quick little guess. We're in it right now. Philippi, that's right. And so he plants a church in Philippi, starts something there, leaves Philippi, goes to Thessalonica, from Thessalonica goes to Berea, from Berea goes to Athens, from Athens goes to Corinth, travels down the coast of the Aegean Sea, planting churches along the way. Unique and different stories in each city. Gets to Corinth, is there for a year and a half uh, in the Vegas of our day, right? Uh, and, and, and sees the gospel get traction there. And then he leaves, heading back uh, on his way to Antioch uh, to start the next journey. And what he's saying here to the Philippians is, man, when I say I greatly rejoice in your partnership with me, I'm not just talking about this gift. I'm talking about the consistency by which you have consistently always been with me. This gift reminds me of what I've actually known all along is that your very regularity of giving is what makes this gift so profound. What Paul is not saying is that this one gift makes me immediately sense your unity and, re- and, 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 and witness with me. He's saying there are actually times where it is the very regularity of the consistency that communicates witness. And when there's a gap in that and then you come back and give, it actually takes the entirety of that and makes it all true again. What Paul is saying is, I wasn't sure if you were still with me because you always were. And this gift now says they always were. How awesome is that? And so what he's saying is, remember when I left Macedonia? You guys were with me then. But now he says, actually, it wasn't only when I left Macedonia that you were with me. He's kind of making the point to the Philippians, guys, of all the churches ever, of all the people that have consistently been engaged in partnership, you are the top of the list. And here's why. Watch what he says. In fact, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs since and again, or uh, time and time again is another way to say that. So here's what he's saying. Look, where did he go from Philippi to Thessalonica. That's right. So what's his first stop after Philippi? Thessalonica. When did the Philippians start sending resources his way? In Thessalonica. How, how early of a church were they in Philippi? Like brand new. Like literally he just planted the church in Philippi and he left and went to Thessalonica. It's this infant little church. And they gets to Thessalonica and word gets back to them that there's some persecution happening. And what do they do? They send him resources immediately. And then he said, and frankly, wherever I went next, including leaving Macedonia, you guys found a way to get to me and tell me we're with you. How grateful is Paul? Very, because the regularity of their giving, the point wasn't that it met his logistical needs, though it did. The point was that it communicated their partnership in the gospel with him from the first day until now. And remember, that's how Paul started this letter. Every time I think of you and pray for you, like literally joy surges in me. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's saying this gift, its regularity, its renewal, its finding me has communicated to my little heart that we're in this together. And so I want you to know that makes me incredibly grateful. 
How awesome is it, folks, that when we decide, either individually or collectively, to be generous, that that generosity, in part, creates a connection, human to human, that is the kind of connection that God says is the kind of connection the world watches for to see. And when they see it, they know we follow Jesus. Your generosity and mine toward a collective vision, like in a place like this, or individually helping someone, speaks the gospel to the cosmos by the very nature that we have shared it one for another. That's crazy. That's enough. Like I could stop here and be like, all right, God, got it. I'm in. I want to be generous. But he's like, oh, <laughs> that's, like the, that's like the cherry on the cake. Let's talk about the cake. How does this roll? So he says this. Not that I seek the gift. So look what Paul's doing now again. Remember, he's working toward a full understanding of what happens when we exchange the resources we have and we invest them in the kingdom work of God through another or through a collective. So he's saying this again, just as I say all this, man, super grateful for your gift. It's been awesome. Remember, not that my gratitude is for the gift itself. This is where we miss the boat a lot, even in our uh, ministries today. We, we have a goal, we get a gift, we bring it, and then what do we do? We come and we put the numbers up and we're like, oh my gosh, we're so grateful. We, we hit our goal. Nothing wrong with that. But the unintended reality is often that we say what we're grateful for is not that we collectively participated. It's that we got what we wanted, the gift itself. That's what matters. And Paul's like, don't care, don't care, not about the gift. Not about the gift. My gratitude is not about the logistics of the gift and what it produces. Because remember, whether I have or don't have the things I need on this planet, my well-being is not set here. I have learned the secret of being content because my well-being is with Jesus. So I have no needs even when I have needs. So your gift meeting those needs is not what makes me super grateful, though I'm a bit grateful for it. What makes me super grateful is the kindness it showed and, now he's saying, And not only the kindness it showed, but in this, I have something else I'm super grateful for. And here's what he says. It's not the gift. It's this. Look what he says. It is not uh, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. (gasps) What does he mean? So this is investment talk. That's what it is. It's investment talk. Paul's like, listen, let me tell you why I'm so grateful you collected this gift told Epaphroditus to bring it here. He almost died on his way here. Almost, actually, almost died here because he brought the gift. And, and uh, man, why I'm so grateful is actually partly for you. Because in sending this gift, something profound has happened for you. And I'm actually rejoicing for you that you sent this gift. What is this profound thing? That this gift will now be credited to you, to you, and it has increased your credit in a place that matters. This is investment talk. I mean, how many of us, you know, lately the markets are doing, you know, the market thing. And, and so, you know, half of us are uh, elated or panicking second by second because you're like, oh my gosh, I have a dollar in there. Now it's a hundred dollars. Oh my gosh, now it's 50 cents. Oh my gosh, now it's a hundred dollars. You know, Bitcoin, well done. Um, you know, uh, so you, you're sort of like, oh my gosh, billionaire. Uh, oh my gosh, broke. Um, and, and, and really uh, it, it functions across the way with that. You're like, no, it doesn't. I'm an Amazon. I'm like, oh, I'm super thrilled for you. Give it 50 years, but, uh, and maybe one. But the point is um, investment is a weird thing, isn't it? Because uh, it's always a hindsight thing that you kind of wish you had. Can you imagine uh, if you had invested in like Amazon or Apple or something like that, like when it was a nothing? Now, have you ever had that thought? 
Like, you know, you see somebody and you're like, oh my gosh, they, they invested in that. They're a multi-trillionaire now. And, and I, I had $10 back then, but that $10 seemed really important and I should have put it in Amazon. Because then that, t- and have you ever like Googled, like if I put $100 in Amazon in 1997, what would it be worth now? And then you look at that number and you get nauseous and you're like, oh, I could have retired at 12. You know? <clears throat> so you have that feeling. What, what if... What if um, somebody you knew, dear friend, um, back then, you know, when Amazon was a nothing or Apple was a nothing or you pick a different one, Bitcoin was a nothing, now it's a nothing again, but then it was and then it wasn't, you know, all that stuff. What if back then somebody that was your friend, like they knew that they knew that like they they had, now not illegal guarantee because you know there's rules about investments. I'm not talking about the illegalities. I'm just saying, let's say somebody you knew was like 100% sure that maybe they traveled into the future and they saw the future and they came back and they're like, I know. And they took their $10 and they invested it in Amazon, but they didn't tell you. And then, you know, 20 years went by and they were a multi-trillionaire and you were broke. Uh, You still had your $10, maybe 20. And they came to you and they're like, oh, by the way, 20 years ago, I knew. Not like I guessed, I knew. And you're like, you, you knew? Yeah, but I didn't want to tell you because I, I didn't want to have that awkward conversation with you about arguing about the $10 and how do I know and what's the difference. And so I just left it alone. I mean, I knew you'd be a trillionaire, but I figured you'd rather not have that small, awkward conversation than be a trillionaire. How would you feel about that person? <laughs> be like, hold on, time out. You avoided a small, teeny, tiny, awkward conversation with me because you weren't sure that I would believe you, that you knew, and and now I've missed out on being a trillionaire? Are you out of your mind? Awkward conversation, yes! Trillionaire, yes! Next time, please! And this is what Paul's doing right here. He's saying, just FYI, when you take resources that are yours, energy, time, or money, and you invest them into what God is up to, instead of investing them into things that are tied to this planet. What my rejoicing is, is that that investment actually bears dividends, not here, but in eternity. And it is accredited to the stories you'll get to be part of. We have no idea what it's going to be like to walk into eternity and sit around with others and find out what we were given the privilege to participate with. And when we get there, I suspect, as the book says toward the end in Revelation, man, our greatest grief as humans, I think, will not come to find out that we don't know Jesus. For those of us that do, some will even find that out, and that will be a great grief. But for those of us that know Jesus, our greatest grief will to finally realize the difference between eternity and now and realize how much of what we had available to participate with God we invest in a planet that is temporal. You and I leave this planet and whatever you have grown your extraordinary wonder to, you leave it behind for a generation that will squander it. You're like, no, they won't. I have trust funds in place and I've locked it down and they'll never be able to touch it. Great, they'll be bitter toward you and hate you. You're like, that's terrible. It's so skeptical. This is horrible. If not the first generation, then the second. My my point isn't that this will happen or that will happen. It's that no matter how you swing this planet, it comes to an end. Everything. And how grief will be that we missed this. That Paul's saying, any time you take resources that are yours and you divert them into an endeavor that 
ties to the redeeming of things on this planet on behalf of God, either meeting Paul's needs or being part of Paul's ministry like they were for so long. My rejoicing for you is that you have invested in something that will make Amazon look like a joke. And when we leave this planet together, we're both going to go, boom! I mean, wow! Not because God's going to roll in with a bigger mansion, because first of all, there's not even stupid mansions and like King James, why? Um, It's another story for another time. But because what we will discover is that buying and investing in stories mattered a whole lot more than buying and investing in stuff. And that the stories we carry into eternity will be part of the glory that we get to share in where our Savior and King says, well done, we did this together. Instead of, oh, that stuff went to seemingly important things that seemingly ended up not being nearly as seemingly important because they have now rotted. And so Paul's saying, man, like I'm thrilled for you because you've just added to an investment that is better than you can imagine. Now, Paul's not done. Watch this. Now he says this. Not only that, but I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. I love that what Paul's doing is this. Listen, first of all, I didn't need it, but what makes it powerful is that it ties us together and displays the gospel in our unity. So when we collectively give together in generosity, it shows the world something they cannot fathom of where we are and where our hearts are and who we belong to, to one another and to God. Then he says, and I'm thrilled for you because this is the way to invest your resources. Man, you have no idea what a credit that is going to be in the story of eternity for you. Believe that, know that, I'm telling you that. Don't neglect that. You'll be super grieved. And then he goes, and by the way, it's made a really big difference here too. Look what Paul's doing. What a gift to us. What a gift to the church in Philippi and something to learn about when we give and receive from each other. When someone gives to you or when you guys collectively give together with me and we get to do awesome stuff around here, we should regularly say, frankly, even if we don't need it, it doesn't matter. It's worth it investing it in eternity, right? But we do need it, and it does matter, so look at all the things it's done. See, that's what Paul's doing. The real difference is where? Eternity. But does it make a difference now? Yes, Paul's like, and by the way, I got the whole thing, and it's already at work, and I'm already spending it, and it's awesome, and it's making a difference, and even though I don't need it, I need it, and it's so cool. Thank you. Because God... Listen carefully now. God is so gracious to us that even in the things we ought not to desire, like some kind of like affirmation that our gift mattered, God still gives us those things as a gift. He's like, what you invested in made a difference on this planet. It changed something. It redeemed something. Well done. And we're like, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. What a gift. So it is important that we recognize that though God doesn't need your generosity, in this collective space, when you give it, we get to do awesome stuff. Here at Mosaic, it's a great example. Just like I said to you, uh, we've seen the example of it producing unity and withness. We see the other example too. You know how many awesome things we get to do together? We have like 56 global partners and local partners. I can't even count anymore. We invest so much money into people doing amazing gospel works around the world. You don't even know what half of them do. And guess what he's saying? 
you are part of what they're doing if you are generous here and if we are collectively. We get to invest deeply internally here, having the staff we need to equip you guys to be the saints that carry the gospel out and do the ministry of the gospel, to disciple your children, your students, and you. We are able to invest in things here that move ministry forward. We are able to create experiences that stir our hearts up toward love and good deeds. All these things because of our collective generosity. So what Paul's saying is, by the way, though we don't need your money, God doesn't need your money. If you don't give, it doesn't matter because frankly, he'll do what he wants anyways. We also get to say, but since you gave, it's making how much of a difference? A giant difference. Listen, folks, let me just be abundantly honest with you, okay? Like God doesn't care if you are generous here and nor do I. And you're like, what? No, really, if you guys all stop giving and we can't do anything, this isn't my church. I want to change the world as much as anybody, but God makes that decision. I don't. And if he decides the resources we need are only teeny tiny little and we can do next to nothing with them, then I better learn to be content in doing what God's asked me to do, regardless of lack of resources. And if we have a ton of resources, because all of you are extremely generous and Brooke and I are generous along with you, then we get to do awesome, amazing stuff. Which would I rather do? Yes, the big change in the world stuff, but I'd rather do that. I don't need to do that. It's not my story. It's not your story. So listen to me. Us giving here, what Paul's saying is, I'm just telling you, it does make a giant difference, even though God doesn't need your stuff. What an awesome thing. You get to invest in eternity. It changes the world. And then look what he says next. I have been well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now look what he does. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. What? He lays down the final piece. All of this I've talked about, it, it produces unity that displays the gospel to the world. Check. It's an investment in a worthy reality that's better than anything this planet will ever offer. Check. Also, uh, it meets real needs here and binds us together, check. But all of that is still the icing on the cake. What this boils down to is when you take your resources that aren't actually yours, but are God's, and you bring them back to God and you say to him, actually, these are yours and they're for you. And the reason I'm bringing them isn't even because it's an awesome gospel unity, because Paul feels better about it, because I'm investing in eternity. All those are still somewhat self-focused. At the end of the day, this is one thing and one thing alone. It is my offering to who? You, God. You and you alone. I bring it to you. And it is not just an offering, it is a sacrifice. I bring it to you as a sacrifice. And there's profound nature in the way that offerings were produced throughout scripture, that they were sacrificial because they forced the human being to, to take something that felt like a safety, a security, a need and say, to remind my soul that my safety, security and needs are not founded in the realities of this world. I need to consistently sacrificially give to God what causes me to go, Okay, I'm in a place now where you are reminded and I am reminded that I trust in you and not in the stuff. God's call for us to offer sacrifices to him have always been in part to protect our soul. They are in part for other things, but they are in part to protect our soul from believing that our well-being is found in these things and to be reminded that our well-being is found in God and God alone. 
And so the final gift to generosity is, I will guard your soul because this is a fragrant offering. It is a sacrifice. The beauty of tithing in the New Testament is that it shifted from the sequence of the Old Testament that was more precise, not that it's intended to be ignored, the Old Testament, but it has shifted to something more profound than the precision of the percentages. Uh, God moved from percentages to sacrifice. He said, uh, when you give, when it is sacrificial, that is the moment that you know I'm now guarding my soul. So for some of us here, giving 2% of our income is such a giant leap because of where we're at in life and takes so much off the table that it feels like a giant sacrifice because it is. And God is like already there. Well done. For some of us, 15% of our income feels like a, a, a part of the budget that just rolls on and it doesn't even change anything. And what God would argue, I think, with those of us that are there is saying, push harder. Push to where it bites enough that you're like, that's felt to the point where I'm like, it affects things. Why? Because when Paul says this is an offering that is sacrificial, it is a fragrance to God of our worship, of our trust. So look at the profound nature of giving. All that it does. And then he says this. Oh gosh, look at this. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, thank you, Renaud. There it is. The formula I've been waiting for. I just needed to know that if I'm going to give a lot, I can count on God giving it back and more. Mm, I hear you, but I have some sad news. See, this, these are the kinds of sentences that we pull and we tie them to some other sentences in the Bible to try to affect a formula that says this. If you faithfully give God $10 sacrificially, know that when you do that, that investment is actually so that God can, like Amazon, give it back to you now, not just in eternity. So he guarantees that you'll get a hundredfold. How many people I have encountered that gave to God because they were really in need and it was a formula in which they could supply their needs by giving a little bit so God can give them a lot. And then when he doesn't, guess who they're mad at? God. And he never even made that promise. They ought to be mad at the person that told them that God made that promise. Because that is a sick and terrible theology that says if you give to God, the reason you should give is because he'll give you more. See, he answered this question in this letter. What did he tell the Philippians when he started this letter? Man, every time I think of you and pray for you, I pray with great joy because of your partnership in the gospel and from the first day until now. Remember that sentence? And what was the very next sentence? It literally, period, next sentence was this. For I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The promise of God to you is what Paul discovered that he just told us in this letter, that as your resources shift in and out of your life and you have plenty and you have want and you have plenty and you have want and you have plenty and you have want, his promise isn't if you give out of your plenty or out of your want, I'll give you enough so you have no want. His promise is that I will teach your heart to be content no matter whether you have a lot or little. I will set you free from this place and your well-being tied to circumstances, resources, and relationships. Your freedom you thought was tied to me giving you enough so that you will be secure on this planet. I have more for you. 
My promise to you, as Paul said he will do, is to supply needs for you in such a way that your soul needs to be secure and safe and what God is doing that he is good will be so much enough that you too, like Paul, will say, I have learned the secret of being content, whether in plenty or in want. I am free. So Paul says, remember Philippians, as he has done for me, he will do for you. That just when you think these things are your well-being, as you sacrificially give them to invest them in God, he will do something profound in you. He will meet needs for you you didn't even know you had. And he will change you so that you need nothing. This is freedom. Will he sometimes give you a hundredfold? Yes, maybe. Will he sometimes give you zerofold? Yes, maybe. It's not a formula. It's just a reality of God's goodness in the circumstances of our lives. Sometimes we get a lot, sometimes we don't. It's not a formula. It is a promise of completion that Paul is speaking of here. And then look what he says. And all this, all this, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that Paul here says not to my God or to the God, which he often says he now ties it to who? To our God. He's like, we're in partnership. We're sacrificing together. We're investing in the kingdom. We're sharing our resources. We're letting God change us. And so all this to whose glory? God's glory. None of this should be about what you need or want, a formula to give so you can get, to invest so you'll have more, to walk into heaven and say, "Eh, my Amazon stock's better than yours in heaven. Because what is actually already enough for us? Jesus. When you roll into heaven, You're not going to care one bit about how you're just going to see Jesus and go, enough, done, finished. And everything else will just be an extraordinary privilege because at the end of the day, all this says one thing to us. One thing, that us participating in anything that's kingdom endeavors is not something God needs from us. It's something that God allows us to do. And your choice, like mine, is simple. If you would like to invest all of your time, energy, and resources into a bunch of stuff on this planet, that will eventually rot or be squandered at some point by some other generation, please feel free. That's kind of how God does this. He's like, I mean, feel free. I don't need your stuff. I don't need your money. The visions I produce, I'm not waiting to see if the people will get behind it. You know, we always do that. God's vision is giant and he will supply the needs for it. There's nothing wrong with having great vision and trusting God to supply needs. But what if he doesn't? Is that because the people were, uh, were, were, were not listening? Is it because God was like, oh, I had such a great vision and then the people didn't respond and I don't know what to do now. Does that sound like God at all? No, maybe our vision was a little obtuse and God was like, no, those aren't the resources you need. You actually need these and so adjust. The point is God doesn't need you and doesn't need me, doesn't need your stuff and doesn't need mine. But what he does do, what he does do is invite you and I to participate with him in glory And one of the ways that he allows us to do that is by saying, take the resources you have, invest them collectively in ministry that is mine, and you get to be part of things you're not even doing. And they will be credited in part to the stories you get to bring into eternity. So when you're sitting at the fireplace and someone sitting there comes to you and says, hey, by the way, thanks so much for the profound gospel investment you made in Indonesia. And you'll be like, never went to Indonesia, don't know about it. And they're like, yeah, but you gave to this church and then this church supported us. And then those gospel endeavors were yours as well. And you'll go, what? Another thing I got to be part of. And you'll run over to Jesus, get on your knees and say, thank you so much. I want a lot of those events. And he invites us to be part of that. You choose. 
be part of whatever you want. But boy, Paul sure did say, here's an invitation beyond your wildest imagination. May we be generous with our resources, our time and our energy, not because we have to, but because we get to. I close with this. This is exactly why here at Mosaic Church, we don't pass a plate because we don't want giving here to be a random act of guilt. Roll, I'm not, not for all of you, that would be the case. But as the plate comes, you're like, oh, darn it, the plate, the song's playing. I should have known. And we pull it out and we're like, quick, we want this to be an intentional act of worship on your part because we want this to be true. God doesn't need your money, nor do we. But what a joy it is when we collectively start buying into what we get to be part of. And so we have boxes in the back. We have online stuff so that you have to choose intentionally to give around here. Because our job is not to take your money from you into our bank account. Our job is simply like Paul to remind you of what you can get to be part of if you invest your resources into things of God and ministries and needs that God is producing rather than things of this world. And then it's up to you to decide if you want to do it or not. We live here where we live by what Paul just said. Feel free to join in if you'd like. Feel free not to. Sad if you don't, not for us, but for you. Thrilled if you do, not for us, but for you and for the gospel, because all of it is to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, thanks for your incredible love for us, the amazing ways in which you are consistently and constantly inviting us to be part of a story we have no business participating in. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the competency. We don't have the resources. Not any one of us collectively even, we don't have enough resources to do what needs to be done to resolve and redeem history. But, But you've already said that you will make all things new with or without us, with or without our resources. And you've already said you will complete every good work you began in us with or without us, with or without our resources. So God, we ask you, Spirit of God, to stir in us Uh, a deep sense of the privilege it is to be with instead of without. God, you don't say, gosh, I need you. Otherwise we can't do this. I can't do this. You say, I'm going to do it with or without you, but you're welcome to do it with me. God, may that be our attitude. I want to do it with you. I want to be part of it. I want to take anything you give me, anything I have, and as much as I'm able, find new ways to expand how much of it I can invest in things you're up to instead of things I want to be up to. Help us to be a generous people, not because we have to, but because we get to. Not out of a heart of obligation, but out of a heart of joy and wonder and privilege. So that our giving to your kingdom would be regular and sacrificial and cheerful. Because we have come to understand the privilege it is to participate with you in any and every part of what we have available, including our resources. Thank you, God, that in this little letter, in Paul's simple thank you, you, Spirit of God, used Paul to share almost everything we ever need to know about what you're up to with our resources when we give them to you or when we don't. And thanks for the freedom you've given us to choose which direction we want to go. Now I'm going to ask that you would help us to choose rightly because sometimes we can be foolish and choose wrongly. We need you even in the choosing to help us choose rightly. Make us a generous people for your glory. And for our good, we pray in Jesus' name.